You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxham. We are back in the world of theatre for this week's show, but with more of a peek behind the curtain than on the stage. In the second act of today's show, the founder of Jefferson City's Capital City Productions, Rob Krauss, will be here to tell us about their brand new home and the upcoming season. But first... Paula Kavanagh Carter Van Landingham is one of an extremely rare breed of people who can not only speak six foreign languages fluently, but with an imperceptible lingual flick can turn on over 50 regional accents and dialects, ranging from Pennsylvanian Dutch to Rwandan and Mexican Spanish to Cockney. And what is even more fascinating is that she can flawlessly trill through a single sentence flowing seamlessly from one accent to another. So it is no wonder that her accent coaching skills are sought after, not only by stars of Broadway stages and Hollywood films, but also by actors around the world who need to be able to imitate a variety of English language accents. But, and here's where my mind is truly blown, she can also teach, say, a Bosnian how to speak lines in German, or an Indian how to say lines in Arabic. Paula was last on the show in September 2018, giving me an introductory lesson on how to speak North Carolina. And clearly her insights into language were not only fascinating to me, but also to lots of listeners, as I think I got more feedback on my shows with Paula than any other. So it is a grand delight to welcome back to Speaking of the Arts, the golden-tongued Paula Carter Kavanagh Van Landingham. Welcome back, Paula. Thank you so much, and you've gotten my entire genealogical line perfectly. <laughs> There's a lot of names. There, there. are now. I, I, I think if you Google Paula and Dialect Coach, you find me anyway, so that's enough. <laughs> that's pretty good. There's only one Paula There's in the whole... There's only one Paula Dialect Coach, yeah. So have you ever met an accent you just couldn't get? No. It t- some take me a little longer to find what are the features that differ from, say, Midwestern American English. Uh, but I usually just sort of tilt my head like a puppy and listen long enough, and I'm listening for the tells. And there's about six or eight sounds that English is already unique in, and therefore I can find those quickly and then and then turn it over. What is your like your dark chocolate melting in the mouth accent, which is the one you love to speak the most? Well. The one that melts me is Sheffield. Sheffield. <laughs> Which is very funny to you. That is hilarious to and me. And so, you know, close enough, when Fiona Hill was on television, I just was glued to the set. She's Geordie, right? She's from Northumberland, yeah. Yeah, but close enough that those are the combos that just melt me. So, you know. Would you like to do the rest of the interview in a Sheffield accent? Oh, that would throw I, me. I would need some uh, tutoring. <laughs> I say, hey, up. 
Well, you see, and I'm from the other side of the Pennines, which is the line of hills that divides England into the the white rose of Yorkshire and the red uh, rose of Lancashire, uh, which goes back to, you know, wars in the yes. 1500s, but <laughs> never shall the twain meet. We all think that we're superior to the other side of the Pennines. So I can't do a Yorkshire accent. It would be against my yeah. upbringing. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm descended from, I think, the, the Welshman who's, who... Uh, stabbed Richard III on the battlefield so somewhere along the line I have a side that's drawn also. (laughs) (laughs) Now although we can all to some extent be taught to listen better and pick up verbal nuances your ability to hear and mimic is really extraordinary. Not every musician can be Mozart and not every student of linguistics can be Paula Van Landingham. So what is your brain doing that mine is not? It must your clue about music was probably close because I'm the only I'm the only non-musician in my family. Everyone else plays an instrument, can sing, can read music, but language is music. And so for me, I've got that recording part of the brain really fine-tuned. I can't play an instrument, but that's the instrument for me. So I'm listening to fine differences, really fine differences. Like I was working yesterday with an actress who had to try to do a New England accent, which is a descendant from British, and so is southern coastal American. So you would have, what is the difference between, say, Brooklyn, Harry Potter better write his mother a letter. Then you go down to the Carolinas, Harry Potter better write his mother a letter. And then you've got New England, Harry Potter better write his mother a letter. And you're like, wow, so they all lose their R's. What, how are those different? And they're so close. And so sometimes it's just where the face lands, how much your chin is allowed to move or not. And once I identify those, I can show an actor, like I did yesterday, um, okay, let's say, so you're gonna be the North England, New England sound, so pretend you have a chin strap on that your chin can't go any further. And then that keeps you from going Brooklyn or Savannah. When did that T sound in English become the kind of a, a soft D sound, like like you were just saying that yeah. example of letter, as I would say, right. to letter. I definitely think probably early 1800s in the United States, after we had been separated from the homeland and enough generation where there were no longer Americans who still spoke with their original British accent, in isolation, uh, speed and sloppiness took over. And so then when you say, don't do it, don't do it anymore, that just started to propagate and there was no connection. You wouldn't hear live speakers anymore of the original British, don't do it anymore. And then it would just go from there and there were, until the invention of radio, you wouldn't really have lots of exposure to other voices um, from the original dialect. So after America had been here for long enough and a lot of distance, it started. A lot of dialects uh, have gone, they're, they're, they've died because they were there were so many before we started moving around the world so globally that my linguistics professor could tell you what street yes. somebody grew up on in Manchester because everybody on that street worked in the same factory. They had right. micro differences. Yes. Are, are we going to have no accents in you the know, future? That's a very interesting point because now with internet, TikTok, YouTube, people are now exposed to so many uh, standardized accents or, you know, uh, mainstreamed ones. So people may know RP London, but they don't hear enough, let's say Fiona Hill, they don't hear enough Cornwall. So they wouldn't have been exposed to it. We were talking yesterday with an actor who was working on, quote, Viking accent. And and so we said, okay, now this is an area of linguistics where we're, we're creating an accent, speaking our current language, English, 
what features do we want to put on it to make it sound like in our ears something we would recognize as Scandinavian 2,000 years ago? So, you know, you're going, okay, how do I signal to you these hints that your brain may not hear very often? So the mainstream, the New York, American Midwest, London RP become the monster dialects and the others just get so rare that we might not even recognize them anymore. Um, not being able to instantly go, oh, that's a, that's a French accent. The little ones now, people can't tell maybe the difference between Alabama and Texas, or they're not quite sure. But how do we know what Vikings sounded like 2,000 years ago? So, for that example, I played the actor, which, of course, you couldn't give maybe a little sample of Swedish. <laughs> I, I played him a sample of what the actual Swedish, Danish, Norwegian languages sound like. And I said, for example, listen to things like you know, the, the naming conventions. So we're used to like Johansson. We've heard that. But I said, then you get the, the daughter descendants. So like Jorgen's daughter. And I said, a lot of the world accents don't, they don't do the R real strong like we do. But a lot of the Scandinavian languages are happy to do so. Icelandic, they can do the R sound. So we worked on that and said, filter that a lot in your accent because it's an, a foreign sound. It sounds ancient. It sounds more brutal to the ear. And this person was going for a character who slays bison for uh, survival. You know, so we were borrowing hints uh, that would be in line with what Scandinavian languages do, borrowing those sounds like th as th-th-thor with his hammer. Um, <laughs> sounds like that and building what it would sound like through English. So it was like an artificial creation. I'm always fascinated when you hear somebody speak out loud the English of Chaucer or the English of Beowulf, which is, you know, even older, and you do not know they are speaking English. It does not sound like our language at all. And the sounds, they make a difference. So again, yeah. I'm sure that Viking Scandinavian had quite different sounds than contemporary Scandinavian, but of course nobody is going to check. No, and so <laughs> and it's and it becomes an artistic creation to say we want to evoke what your ear thinks that represents. Though the further go you go back into Germanic sounds like, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> it sounds great on the radio. Uh, <laughs> you know, those are sounds that English used to have much more, uh, and then it evolved away from German as the root when the French invaded. So. Our language sound changed quite a bit at that time. So 1066 onward, it was less Saxon. Hmm. More, more French influence. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. How long does it take you to embed an accent? How many times do you have to listen to it? For me? Yeah. 30 to 60 seconds. Amazing. So you can just meet somebody and then walk away and imitate them. It's terribly hard not to. <laughs> On the way here, I'm already flipping into Diana accent and I'm like, that's incredibly rude. Stop it. You know, but really, my brain loves to play that game. So it says, oh, goody, goody. Is it this one? Is it that? Let's do that one. Or when you're learning a new accent, any actor, I, I warn them and I say, now, your brain will love this new game. You will be in the middle of the night and it'll go okay, we're going to go like this now in the middle of the night. So because your brain is excited like a new toy. And so I, I tell them it works like that. So when you're catching new sounds and new new rhythms, you, your brain just starts to automatically. So yes, if I meet somebody, I have to use extraordinary discipline not to imitate them. And I hear a lot of actors have that. It's like, uh, I think it's a evolutionary trait to recognize that it's not the same and try to mimic it. There are certain accents that whenever I hear it, Scottish being one, which is just so, I, I love the Scottish accent. And also British Indian. 
Yes. Uh, I have to imitate it, yeah. even if it's just quietly. If I'm listening to it on the television, yeah. then I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll repeat it after them. Are, are there certain accents for you that you do that more than others with? You know, <laughs> around the house, yeah, they switch for me mentally all the time. So if particularly I've caught a, a thread of something, I'll be in the kitchen. Now, why don't you know where you put yours? I don't know. I, I have to go walk out the door and then find it again. You know, I'll just talk to myself in this flavor and then my kids will walk in and go oh god what are you doing <laughs> but i encourage other actors to do the same thing to say when you're learning a new accent okay so we're doing we're doing savannah now you're going to go around your apartment and you're going to say now there's my dog waiting at the door i want to let him out but i'm going to have to find the leash first and i say you just try to talk like a baby and you reach for words and sounds in your target um, so I do it all the time. Or I'll catch, like you say, a commercial on television and they might be talking Indian and then I'll switch for the next 30 minutes thinking in that accent. And I'm like, oh boy, when will this pass? <laughs> I met a an Indian woman in Thailand many years ago and she was talking about the massage that she had just had and how great her skin felt. And she said, it was so damn smooth. Yeah. And I'm like, I love that. And I still <laughs> say it all the time. My husband really laughs because I'm like, oh, it's so dancing. <laughs> now, as you know, I go to a lot of theatre. And unless I know in advance that characters are going to do an English accent, you know, like I don't go. I generally don't go if I know it's going to be English accents because it is a little bit, quite often, nails down a chalkboard yeah. for me. So I'm wondering what Americans struggle with the most in imitating oh. just a, a, a general the, English sure. accent. The very strangest thing is the old trap bath problem. So we as Americans have the original Yorkshire, the master of the bath. You know, we have that pronunciation, which is still in Yorkshire. But in London and other places, it switched to dance and laugh and half and past. Most Americans don't have that instinctually. And I have a cheat sheet of like the hundred words you need to learn and say, but what you don't want to do is accidentally broaden one that is home-based. So you don't say, give me your hand. I would love to uh, own this land. And I said, because then you're going to go Scottish or Jamaican and you don't know what you're doing. And then I go, and then you feel lost. And I said, so that you have to get very clean. And I said, I tell you what, with an American audience, if you're not sure, go with our home pronunciation because it will not bend the ear as badly. If you say, well, I will love to have you at my dance, we'll process that as a British accent. But if you say, give me your hand, we know, no, stop. So that's the hardest one at first. That's interesting because it seems like that is such an obvious one to me. And yet that is exactly what I've heard just butchered on stages in the last <sighs> yeah, year. And I feel badly because if, you know, I could help you. <laughs> and, you know, right now, Hickman High School and I usually work with their productions. Right now they're doing Clue. So several uh, of the actors have a British accent. Uh, and when they say British, we mean London. So uh, they were very diligent and said, you know, what, what, do you have some workouts for me? Some, and I do. I have pages of the, the, the words you should work on and me doing the tape. So to say, the master of the bath and the half and the laugh and so that they can memorize it that way and try to get it ingrained and then be second nature and then it's smoother. Having one parent from the north and one parent from the south of England, there were often discussions in our house about how we should speak because my mother yeah. thought that we were slovenly having a northern accent. and um, That used to be 
they used to be the way, exactly. Yeah, and so there was a phrase that my dad used to say <laughs> that we'd make us all laugh, but it's a great lesson in that A sound. So it was, if you say it in a southern accent, I saw a giraffe go up the path for a bath on a Sunday afternoon, as opposed to the north where you say, I saw a giraffe go up the path for a bath on a Sunday afternoon. So you've got the A and the U right. that is that's very other, different. That's the other pillar of the accent. So I teach people that huck fin sounds like hook, hook. Uh, I, I shoot a buck, I shoot a book. So, you know, that's the other one. We say, if we're going to go a little north now, this is the first thing you have to adjust. And it's there from there to the Scottish border. I love not only if I can pass without being detected, but my best is when I can train an actor to pass on set. And I'll tell you a story about that in a minute. Well, I, before you tell me that, I was going to ask you similarly, what do the English struggle with when trying to imitate an, um, a general, ah, generic our, American accent? Yeah, absolutely. It's our, it's our North American O. So what used to be clock and not, in Chicago post-Ireland influence, it's clock and not and hat. So a British person can change to an American accent and do really, really well until they get to the word not. And then I say, it's the hardest word to change because it's one of the first ones you've learned. So everything else will be fine. And then as soon as I catch, oh, oh they missed that one. I'm like, ah, it's a British guy. And I Google it. <laughs> so it's the word not and, and the words that rhyme with it, but not especially because you, it's a grammar word. So you don't have anything visually in your mind. Like you can picture clock and train yourself to say clock, clock. Okay. But that's the tell. So the, the, the North American short O is the hardest. It makes my husband's ears bleed when I say this, but my one little American phrase is, oh my God, I got butter and water on my pretty sweater. That's pretty good. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> you tell him I said, you pass. <laughs> okay, tell me your story. So this is such a, a perfect example. I was working with an actress who is based in Atlanta. She is a Latina actress and was cast, cost, in a sort I it often I'm working in secret. So the scripts are secret, they're they're named code words. Even the actor themselves doesn't always know the name of the film. So we were working in secret on only her lines that she knew she was going to be in some sort of futuristic fantasy type piece where she was expected to speak in a Scottish accent. You would not expect a Latina actress to have a Scottish accent. So it was definitely trying to alter expectations. Of course, she would have had no career reason to learn Scottish. So she was really nervous, but wanted to get it right with me. We worked extensively. So she gets on set. She's only got supposedly a few lines that are, are planned. She realizes her co-actors have not researched the accent much and are trying to wing it. The producers catch that pretty quickly and they say, hey, if we give you a bigger speech, could you handle that? And she said, of course. So then she sees Peter Capaldi walk on set, the 12th doctor, <laughs> who is Scottish. And so he's in the scene with her and they're doing, she's doing her Scottish accent and he's coming back with it. And he goes, I didn't know there were so many Scots on set. And so it, it passed. She passed hit muster with him. And I thought, I fooled the doctor. I fooled the doctor. Oh, So I've been really excited about that ever since. That's impressive to get it past Peter Capaldi. Yes. So I don't know the name of the film yet. I suspect, I think I know what it is. But when it's released, I'll brag to everyone. 
Yes, you definitely, definitely <laughs> should. Now, last December, I was in New York and I saw Marissa Tomei in the rose tattoo, oh. which was fabulous. But the the accent was so complicated. So it was multi-layered. She is performing as an, in the 1950s. It's a Tennessee Williams play. So it's set in the 1950s mm-hmm. in Louisiana. And she's an Italian immigrant into America. So there's Ooh. all these layers Ooh, of accents. Yes. Where do you even start when you have so many layers like that? I, I have a, a mental scale I tell someone that in any accent, any accent at all, you have a scale that goes all the way from comedy, animation, SNL. So, you you know, you're going to make fun of people and you're going to be real exaggerated all the way to, let's say, uh, dramatic roles where you want to go lightly so that you don't uh, caricature the accent too much and, and make it too silly. And then I would call my CIA phase of you really are going to be walking around in a village where you want to be undiscovered or you want to pass, you know. So you take you take those features and, and move them up and down the scale. So for her, they may have worked with a coach that said, okay, we want to have a feature that you seem to not be able to forget in Italian, like the TH. So there, there might be this, that, these, those, and the other ones. And then maybe she would have accomplished the Southern father, sister, mother. So it would be a blend. What's the most complicated accent you've taught? Wow, I, th- I I think the Scandinavian one, honestly, like Icelandic Scandinavian, because it's it's an island unto itself, really, in world languages that we know. We we all can recognize the Arabic family, the Germanic family, British-ish, you know. But it's got a combination of things where the th is like the this that those the r is still strong in there, and it doesn't match very many others and so that's hard to get. South African is also hard because it's I say a combination of Australian and Indian. So most actors don't even have the the, the foundational two in the first place to be able to combine them. So there's these oddities that are sort of off on their own and not used much in mainstream films and video games so we don't get a lot of exposure to them to imitate. Everybody's imitated Mary Poppins their whole life. But these other ones, we don't hear very much, so it's harder to get there. Icelandic is so interesting because it was such an isolated community. So in terms of modern languages, just grammatically, linguistically, it's a rarity in being very intact, where you know the other Scandinavian languages, all of Europe, we've all influenced each other, but right. Icelandic really hasn't. So I guess that follows through to the pronunciation as well. Yeah, and they, you know, it's out of the original, very old root of Germanic languages, but they didn't get the invasions of the French and they didn't get other uh, Celts and things moving around. So it, it's it's a good model if you want to pretend to go back in time. Right. So what else have you been working on lately? Well, Accent-wise. Uh, yeah, so a little bit locally. I'm doing a tutorial for the Capital City production of Bonnie and Clyde to kind of help people who are about to audition for the show, help them keep straight which Southern accent is which. So I say, you know, Harry Potter better write his mother a letter versus Harry Potter better write his mother a letter. What happens is some people are not clear on which one is which and they mix them up. So they might say, Harry Potter better write his mother a letter and then get very lost. And so I'm making a tutorial for the for the auditioners and the cast so that they can kind of get a base um, and play it back whenever they want to and kind of get that smoother. And then, you know, this is always fun. All day long, I'll get requests from actors all over the world. So 
On my way here, I had one of my student children actors who's going to do a voiceover for an animated character who's supposed to be Brooklyn, like Bernie Sanders, but a dog, you know. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of times if they're in another place and we don't have a time to work live, I'll do a recording of the lines and send it off to them and say, it should sound like this. And then they can rehearse with it. So I send those all over the planet all the time. So my voice is out there millions of times. <laughs> How many dialect coaches are there? Great question. Some people are listed more as a dialogue coach, which means more like acting. What I think of is what I do. I, I think there are, might be about 18 of them working, in at least in the United States and, and England. There's not very many. And as I've heard, no one who speaks as many languages as I do and working in the industry. A few of them have a couple of other languages. One of them works and, you know, created the language for Game of Thrones, Dothraki. And then, you know, there's the guy who was the coach for Orange is the New Black happens to also be a Chinese language dialect coach. But I can work, for example, like, you know, there's Netflix has the um, Narcos series. So there are uh, a multitude of actors who come who say, I'm, I'm Latina, Latino, but I'm from Colombia, I'm from Puerto Rico, but I'm supposed to sound like Mexican, help me sound like this in Spanish. Or I have a, a Castilian Spanish actress who needed to say, okay, I speak European Spanish, how do I sound like 1970s Mexico? And then we switch and we do the Spanish scene and I'm speaking Spanish and so is the other actress. I can do that in German, French, Russian. I've actually had to coach Russian. Russian and, and Spanish are the two most hot demand accents because you've got the whole Putin and everything associated with him. So we get lots of oligarch characters, gangster characters that come through, and then a, a wide variety of things in the drama of asylum seekers and, and what's happening politically. Can you give me a sentence in Castilian Spanish and then give it to me in 1970s Mexican Spanish? Oh, okay. So, sapo y sepo preparando al colina abajo. El desglizarse, that means slide down the hill. Uh, they, they are preparing to go down the hill. So, desglizarse in Mexican Spanish. And if you can say, volver is come back. In, in Mexico, it would be volver, vacaciones, la vaca, where the lips never really touch, but they do in Spain. But the sound of um, like, que hiciste, what did you do? Mexican Spanish, Castilian Spanish, que hiciste en la cerca de la Barcelona. So there's not that, th that uh, kind of lispy th sound not, in... Not in Mexico, no. Oh. So that's absent. So it's really interesting how certain sounds descended out of an original language and moved or, or changed. And again, there's a lot of influence in, in Mexico from the indigenous languages. So like, for example, in the Mayan languages, there is not really an F sound. So Francisco is pr, like P, Francisco. Or they'll say, hey, I want to tomar una panta. I want to drink a Fanta. And it'll, they'll substitute a P. So some of those sounds are blending because of who are the bilinguals in the area. And that is, of course, endlessly fascinating to me. <laughs> Are there conferences and awards for dialect coaches? You know, it's interesting. There's not even, there's not a union among SAG-AFTRA. There's not a dialect coaches union. There's so few of us that they have never even really given the attention to band. And, you know, they usually allow us to follow the union laws for SAG-AFTRA. And there's never been an Oscar for the dialect coaching itself, even though it's as much a design of the production 
as the sets, the costumes, but I think it has been the great secret that actors are supposed to be magically able to do this and that they didn't need help. And so I think as it gets more mainstream, you know, like Christian Bale is my probably favorite. He can do every accent flawlessly. And he has a wonderful, wonderful dialect coach who has worked with him for a couple decades now and is never hardly mentioned at all. And amongst us in the trade, we know she's like the queen, but people think he is that talented. And he's probably one of us. He's probably a secret dialect coach underneath like Meryl Streep. But it's just never talked about very much in the mainstream. But I can't imagine someday that there wouldn't be. And Oscar for Best Dialect Coach goes to... We should do some lobbying for that. Uh, right you on. definitely deserve an, an Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> My films have won. I, there's one film that I that won an Oscar that I helped because it was a British actress playing an American, and that won the student Oscar a couple of years ago. So I get to say I've worked on an Oscar-winning film. You know, I think there are going to be awards in Columbia for community theatre, and I, I think we should lobby for having a best dialect. Oh, yeah, <laughs> actually, that'd be great. Of course, you, you'd win the coach award every time because well, there is only you. But. I, I remember at the... the the wedding president talking horse when I had to teach actors to speak Japanese. That was a real pride point because I was like, you guys, you did it. <laughs> it was great. What accents are left on your list? The, the weakest ones that I'm not really certain about are Vietnamese, Korean. I'm not solid. I can do Japanese and Chinese pretty well. Those are a little bit of a mystery to me. And yeah, Scandinavia. That's, I'm also a little shaky there. So. <laughs> I can maybe help you with that I one. I think that'd be great. I think Korean and Vietnamese, you're on your own. <laughs> My first act guest today has been Paula Van Landingham, dialect coach to stars of stage and screen. You can find out more about Paula and her dialect coaching at accentcolors.net. And colors is spelled the American way. No you. Thank you, Paula. Lovely. Thanks for asking me to play. You're listening to Speaking of the Arts on 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. And after a short break, I'll be chatting to Capital City Productions founder, Rob Krause, about the loss of their longtime home and their move to a brand new one. Don't wander off. Welcome back to Speaking of the Arts. Moving home is said to be one of the most stressful things we ever do up there with getting divorced. And it is no less stressful when the home you are moving is your work home, especially when you have no control over it. In the summer of 2018, Capital City Productions found out that the building they had called home for over a decade was going to be sold. It was a space that they had turned into a theatrical home through thousands of hours of sweat, equity, fundraising and a lot of love. Their attempts to buy the building from the Jefferson City Housing Authority failed and in August of last year they knew with absolute finality that they would have to leave their home by December the 31st. Fortunately, it is a story which has a happy ending, or at least a happy new beginning. And here to tell us all about the new Capital City Productions era is the company's founder, Rob Krause. Welcome back to the show, Rob. Diana, thanks. <laughs> Great to be here. Even despite the snow, thank you for making it up from <laughs> Jefferson City. So the story goes that one day you found a man wandering around the building, and then it was one of your own volunteers who also worked for the Housing Authority that confirmed their plan to sell your home. What was going through your mind as all these pieces fell into place? Well, panic. <laughs> we we didn't know what to think because we hadn't heard anything from anybody with any authority. So then we started 
checking out and finding out that that was indeed the case because we operated in kind of a unique situation. The Jefferson City Housing Authority owned the building, but they subleased, uh, Parks and Recreation subleased it for the gym that was in the basement. And then the other two floors were empty and that's the space that then we subleased from parks and recreation. And so we tried to work with both parks and recreation and the housing authority to come up with some way that we could uh, gradually, because we certainly didn't have the money up front to purchase the building and parks and recreation presented a plan where we could gradually buy the building, but the housing authority put it up for auction and we bid and did not get the, the winning bid. Fortunately, uh, the people that did get the winning bid were the Catholic Charities, so it will be another joyful use of the building. I mean, it's not going to be vacant, but it was just uh, the day we ended up, because of our one show, Plaid Tidings, going to December 25th, we had a week to clear everything out and it's a credit to our volunteers that they were able to strip all the lighting equipment, the sound equipment, all the tables, chairs, everything that we had accumulated over 13 years in a week out of the building. But it was still, I was the one, unfortunately for me, that ended up taking the keys back to the building after it was stripped. And so it was a it was a very bittersweet moment because we had taken that space which was vacant, and with the help of uh, a couple of donors and then my late wife who said this has been your dream go for it and allowed us to take a second mortgage on our home to renovate the theater, otherwise it would have never happened. So uh, I, I give her a lot of credit for following my crazy dreams to do something like this. Well, and during the last two years, you said off air, I mean, it's been an incredibly stressful time. You have had multiple personal losses. You have lost your wife, your mother, your father and your dog. You managed to get run over. <laughs> By your own car. Ran over myself. Which is a long story. (laughs) But I mean, and then also you find out you're losing this home, the work home that you have put so much love and time into. I mean, what kept you going through all that time? Uh, I just kept looking at Job or Charlie Brown and going, things things have to be better than that. No, I I will tell you, if you know we look at Capital City Productions as a family, and if it hadn't been for my Capital City Productions, Productions family. For example, Newsies, when we were doing Newsies, it had just opened and my wife that night had said, you know, I'm going to drop by the theater, but I have tickets to see it next week, so I won't stay. Well, she was so entranced when she got there and enjoyed the production. And when I got home, she said, you know, that was just fabulous. And I look back always because she passed away before she had tickets to see the show and she would have never seen it and because of having that show 
and the 55 great young people that were in that show. When I came back the night I came back after the service and everything, if you've ever been group hugged by 55 people, it's one of the most uplifting experiences you could have. And it's it was very emotional, but you know, they have been there for me and they have gotten me through a lot over the last two years. And the show must go on. And the show must go on. But I mean, when you were planning for this year's season, at the time you were planning it, you knew you didn't have a home. I, I, I do have to throw one thing in also of crediting my son, who was devoted to his mother and was just devastated with her sudden death. He was at Lake Okaboji getting ready to perform in Annie at Okaboji Summer Theater. He came home, did the service and all of that, flew back to Iowa, did the final tech of the show and went on. So he puts me to shame in professionalism. Of, of being able to carry on. I don't know how he did it. You really have theatre uh, in your heart. <laughs> he said what, he often says, he goes, Dad, what choice did I have? <laughs> so anyway, but um, I'm sorry, I just had to throw sure. that in. So, so you were planning this season, you, you know, like you, plan, you plan seasons a year or more out, but you right. didn't know where you were going to be. No, What, what was didn't. your plan B? <laughs> <laughs> we... We never doubted that we would find a place. I mean, it was very discouraging to look for a year and various places. I mean, we would like every day be driving around Jefferson City looking for an empty space. And you don't realize until you sit down and look at a bunch of buildings, how many are not conducive to theater. The the ceilings are either too low, they've got posts throughout the room, there's not adequate parking, a variety of reasons. And so the one thing we wanted, and this is something you gradually learn, when we first started out in 1991 at the Ramada Inn and built our own stage, the first stage we built was too low. People at the back had to stand up to see the show. And so it's been a learning experience. And so we wanted to make this a better place for our patrons with you've been there and you know in Shikles how crowded the tables were now there's five feet between the tables it's going to be very spacious we have two top tables all around so if people want a romantic just evening by themselves they can we have two flat parking lots big parking lots we have major bathrooms when we get finished with the renovation of the bathrooms with four or five stalls in them so uh, our old space you know everybody's standing in line waiting to go into the restroom so we knew a lot of the things from the learning experience at Shikles that we could do to improve uh, we're going to have dual buffet lines and a full kitchen the thing that's really exciting is because we will finally have a shop that we can build things the theater itself will remain nice so we can rent it out for wedding receptions and parties and events and and things like that and of course we are doubling the space of we'll now seat 288 people the entire space actually triples the space 
that we had. So we'll be able to finally have a costume shop, a prop shop. And what that means for us is, for example, we, we built this extravagant coach and horses for Cinderella. And ordinarily, in cycles, we would have, when the show was over, torn it apart. But we knew we were moving, so we put it in the lobby, and we have now rented that to six other productions of Cinderella around the country. So we will be able to diversify our income by having hard-to-get props and costumes and things like that. The other thing is we've been very involved in helping local high schools and things. We'll be able to rent costumes at a very reasonable cost to them. We will be able to have a year-round children's program, which has been missing in Jeff City. We do a summer camp, but now we will have a year-round program for children. We will also pick up, we had for years, a concert series that brought professional entertainment into Jeff City. We will be able to pick that up in a program we're calling Spots on the Artists that will be very small plays that we wouldn't ordinarily do in musicals and professional entertainers such as Dixie's Tupperware Party, who is this drag queen that is the funniest show you've ever seen, who comes in and demonstrates Tupperware and interacts with the audience and then sells her Tupperware after the show. We're bringing in Angela Ingersoll, whom you would swear was Judy Garland. She sings, tells stories about Judy's life, uh, looks like Judy, and the crowning glory of this first season of the series will be Give Em Hell Harry, the one-man show of Harry Truman, starring Harry Truman's own grandson, Clifton Daniel. We also, for the Harry Potter fans, which are, we're doing Puffs in that series, which is a Harry Potter-themed show. But the first one coming up is I Do, I Do, which I'm directing right now. We're using that as a fundraiser for the theater because our challenge is we have to raise a great deal of money right. in order in stages to get this accomplished. And so if there's somebody out there that wants to donate, please get in touch with us because we're having to do major renovations in a rapid amount of time. The first part to be done in time for us to open I Do, I Do, February next, 6th. Right, next week. In just yeah. a couple of weeks. Two weeks. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. So we have made the tickets $15. There's no dinner so that people can come out and, and support us. Uh, it will all be used as a fundraiser. We'll have raffles. For example, we're raffling off two sets of Fox Club box seats to see Hamilton along with dinner at the Fox Club and parking at the Fox Club and some other wonderful raffle prizes. But I Do, I Do is a show I have wanted to do for a long time, but it was a two-person show and it didn't make sense for us to do. But since we're in the process of moving, this was the ideal time to do it. And Margaret Graham and Steve Kretz are two of our veteran Uh, In fact, you would have seen Steve in Mamma Mia. He played one of the husbands in Mamma Mia. But it's about, for those unfamiliar, it's 45 years of a marriage from the time they move into the house as newlyweds to the time as as older people that they move out to make way for new newlyweds. And it's so funny. It's so heartwarming. And anybody who's dating or 
been married will look at each other when something happens and go, that's you. For example, <laughs> they, make a, they make a list of the things that drive each other crazy about. And she goes, it's a song. And she goes, you chew in your sleep, you go... And I mean, it is just, it, it is a delightful show. It was originally on Broadway with Robert Preston and Mary Martin. Robert Preston actually won the Tony for the show, and it was directed by Gower Champion. And then, a little Missouri trivia, 10 years later, it went on tour with Carol Burnett and Rock Hudson and played the Muni. So there may be some people out there that actually saw Rockinson and Carol Burnett. And it was based and, on a 1951 movie, I think, starring Rex Harrison. The Four Poster. Four Poster. Which was a, a the original play, play and then made into a movie because the whole play takes place in their bedroom over this period of time and around their Four Poster bed. Now, um, you, I mean, you you just moved into this building. You're in the middle of, we're uh, in the doing, middle of reno- renovating, renovating it. So, with a million volunteers. I guess, I guess the stage is the first thing you build. The stage is almost up now and it is that's the other thing every time I walk in my mouth drops because the the space the main theater space is so massive in comparison to what we had and the stage is so big and we actually have wings we never had wings before and we actually have wings for the stage where things can be to come on in the place so when we get done it's going to be remarkable but it is a credit to the huge army of volunteers that we have that are building the stage and doing a lot of the work. They managed within one week time to get all the equipment and everything out of our old theater, Schaikel's Christmas week, uh, between Christmas and New Year's. Where did you put everything? Moved out. We just took it to the new building and, and stacked it up. And some of it is still sitting. This reminds me a lot of when we first moved into Shikles because it was a week and a half before the show and we were rehearsing still on the floor because the stage wasn't finished, the carpet was sitting, sound equipment was sitting in boxes and I'm like, how are we ever gonna open this? And so somehow it happened and somehow it will happen again. So for I do, I do, it's a small set. There's only one set. Right. It's all set in the bedroom. It has, right. How have you, has that been a challenge on this huge stage to build this well, small set? Well, we haven't been on the stage yet. So <laughs> I will I will let you know when that happens. Uh, we've been rehearsing in the other room. But what what we will be doing, I've been working with the lighting designer and the light, and so the lighting will be tight so that we will only use a fraction of this massive stage to do the show. Now, utilities are going to be much different in your new space. I mean, you're going to have a lot more space to heat and cool. Yes, absolutely. So and that's another one of the challenges is we have to upgrade. We're, we're all right on the heat right now, but by spring, one of the phases will be we have to air condition the building. So we need everybody's financial support to put this together, but it's it's going to make a much, a gigantic imprint on the cultural world of central Missouri once this is done. So what, what are your fundraising phases to, to move fully into this new space? Uh, we, this first phase, we need to have between 
50 and 60 thousand dollars in this first phase ultimately altogether it's going to be around 175 thousand dollars to do everything that has to be done but some of it can be done in phases the the parts that have to be done of course the theater has to be ready and the technical stuff is already going up in the upper upper level we have several upper levels we have to carpet the carpet has been ordered we have to get it carpeted the big thing is the restrooms have to be we have two small restrooms and we have to knock out a couple of walls and enlarge into two large bathrooms and that i am hoping that today the city the architects have sent the the drawings and we're hoping we get the city approval today to get started with the bathrooms that's the one thing that isn't in process at least right. now the one thing that theater people don't think about and i didn't i have no business background and when we moved into shikles all the things that you have to do to meet city code and fire code and i had no idea for example when we went into shikles and they came in and they said all your doors open wrong and i go what what do you mean they go you have to pull the doors open in a theater all the doors have to open out well, I'm a theater person. I never thought about things like that. I mean, after that experience, I do now. And fortunately, Nate Gray, who is our president, he has a set design and actually built Walmarts at one part of his life. So he has the background for all of this. He is one of the most fascinating people. He was building sets on Broadway before he had to come home. In fact, when Wicked was at the Fox, the, not this time, but the last time, they called him into St. Louis because the dragon that he actually created for the original Wicked was not functioning. And so they called him from Jefferson City to come into St. Louis to fix it. He's an unbelievable. You have some great people around. Yeah, yeah. He's so, a truly Renaissance man. <laughs> so, I mean, this this new space you are leasing again. You yes. think you've got a five-year lease with a right to renew for another five. Right. Again, in 10 years, you've put all this sweat equity and love and money into this building, and then the landlord might say, okay, well, you need to move out now. How do you well, guard well, against that? Well, first of all, this is actually owned by three men that, of course, had no vision that it could possibly be a theater. And they have been wonderful to work with and, and come in every day amazed at what's going on. And so it's not like we're dealing with a city entity that is, is some day going to go, we need the cash. And so you're out. So we have that to begin with. The other thing is Nate he's a dreamer like I am and he has a, a massive plan his plan is after 10 years that we be in a position that we can not only build our space but build a space that can in house all the arts because we have a terrible time all the theater groups have a terrible time in Jeff City because we have one actual performing arts space that groups can rent but the schools all the schools have priority so there are very few dates during mm. the the time that for example that's where the little theater performs and they get sometimes obnoxious dates 
to perform their plays because they get what's left. And we could really use a, a space for all the performing arts. And so that's that's the ultimate dream. However, I, I feel a lot more comfortable with the fact that if, if that doesn't develop, we're going to be where we are in the new space. It's 719 Wicker Lane. That's Sounds like Missouri. a Mary Poppins address, <laughs> does. doesn't it? Off Missouri Boulevard, right? Right, off Missouri Boulevard. Uh, I think we will be very comfortable there for a long time. And maybe you could buy that building eventually. Do you think that might be feasible? It's, 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 I mean, we have gotten this far. We have gone from 1991 to not having a penny, but having people that believed in us enough to, to start us out to what we have now. And when I sit and see that the first space we rehearsed in was not heated because we couldn't get the room until the week before and it was the middle of winter and so we were sitting in coats rehearsing well in the time we have less let's talk a little bit about what's coming up uh, for the rest of the season after i do i do you have the first big show of the year opens later in february and it is the bodyguard yes tell us a little bit this about that is, well first of all this is a this is a missouri premiere in fact we think it's an amateur theater premiere because we had to contact the people of the tour to get the rights to do this. It's based on the Whitney Houston, Kevin Costner movie with all that great Whitney Houston music. And That's uh, tough to sing. You must have found an amazing Well, actor. Renata Johnson, who our theater goers will have seen in Sister Act and Dreamgirls is playing the the part of Whitney Houston and then a young woman from Columbia actually who is on the board of Talking Horse. Rashara Knight. Yes. Shout out playing, to Rashara Knight. We love Rashara. playing her sister and this is our first experience with her. It'll be and, great. Uh, so looking, <laughs> looking forward to it a lot. And then a gentleman that I've never worked with before or seen on stage before suddenly appeared to play the bodyguard and here walks in this very chiseled faced buff built buff guy and you must be the bodyguard <laughs> uh so anyway it's gonna be it's gonna be a great show and then uh and that opens when when does that open that opens right after us in february right after i do i do yeah, so february after, the 13th or week, something right a week after and then uh, columbia's own ed hansen from talking horse is directing bonnie and clyde which is in april which is i i love that show i've loved that show a long time and it's never been done in central missouri it's by frank wildhorn that did uh, civil war and did uh, jekyll and hyde and a number of great shows and the fabulous paula van landingham is helping you with dialects on that too yes. she was talking about that in the yes. last segment yes absolutely <laughs> she is and uh, so, and then we have Cats, which has never been done around here. So we're doing Cats and then Jekyll and Hyde. And we close that series with Elf, the musical. And you have Billy Elliot as well. Somewhere, oh, and I'm sorry, Billy Elliot. <laughs> I left out Billy Elliot in the summer, which we're also doing. The, the two summer shows are Cats and Billy Elliot. And that's a tough so. one to do because, again, you have actors that need English accents, and Paula, I think, is helping you right, with those accents. Right. And then you she have... doesn't know that yet. <laughs> <laughs> Paula, if you're listening. 
<laughs> Mark your calendar. <laughs> Um, and you already you you're already working with people on on getting ready for that, and it's a tough one because you've got young people. They need to be able to sing, dance, speak in an English accent. So um, right. that's a that's a big one to bite off. Oh, it is. Has that been done around here before? No. Okay, no. first time. Never been done around here. We 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 say the impossible just takes us a little longer. <laughs> Um, thank you so much. My second act guest today is Capital City Productions founder, Rob Krauss. The first production of 2020 is a fundraising performance of the musical comedy I Do, I Do, which will be on stage at CCP's new home on Wicker Lane in Jefferson City from February the 6th to the 8th. You can buy tickets for this show as well as for the first full musical production of the season, which is The Bodyguard. And that's all online at capitalcityproductions.org. Thank you so much, Rob. Thank you, Diane. You're listening to Speaking of the Arts, and I'm Diana Mox. And as usual, we'll end the show with a look at some of the events that are coming up over the next few days in and around Colombia. And like last week, I'm saying all of tonight's events with a provision. I'm not sure what is on and what is cancelled at this point. But uh, um, if everything goes ahead, then this is the lineup. Tonight is the first night of this year's three-day Como Shorts Film Showcase. This year, the showcase is taking place at Talking Horse Theatre and will feature 12 shorts by Missouri filmmakers. The same 12 films will be shown at each of the Friday, Saturday and Sunday sessions, but each session will include a slightly different schedule of surrounding events and musicians. The showcase is on tonight and tomorrow from 6.30 till 10 and Sunday afternoon from 1 till 4. Tickets for each of the showcase sessions are $12 and you can get those on the door. At the Columbia Art League this evening, there is the rescheduled opening reception, maybe rescheduled again, for their food art show this year. It's called Taste. The reception is from 6 till 8 and is free and open to all. At Jesse Hall tonight, the University Concert Series is presenting the musical Finding Neverland. The show starts at 7 and tickets cost from $52. We are into the final weekend of the 6th Annual Missouri Fest. Tonight, the Blue Note hosts the Missouri Bass Fest, featuring Jay Phelps, Section 8, Medusa and Loder. The show starts at 9.30 and tickets cost $8. And at Rose Music Hall, tonight's the night for the Missouri Folk Fest, featuring Tim Carey, the Bernie Sisters, Michael Cochran, Dee Clinton-Thompson and Rose Grogan, and the January Lanterns. You'll need $8 to get in and the show starts at 8pm. And in Jefferson City this is opening weekend for Scene 1 Theatre's two week run of the play Other Desert Cities. Evening show time is 7.30 and tickets are $15. Tomorrow the Choral Arts Alliance of Mid-Missouri hosts its fifth annual concert honouring Dr Martin Luther King Jr's legacy and promoting unity in the community. This year's concert is raising money for City of Refuge and will take place at the Missouri United Methodist Church at 7pm. At the Blue Note tomorrow night, a American singer-songwriter from Nashville, Ward Davis, is on stage with Josh Morningstar. That show starts at 9, and tickets are $20. And over at Rose Music Hall tomorrow night, the Missouri Reggae Fest is on stage with Aaron Cam and the One Drops, the Driftaways, and the Austin Cole Band. That show gets underway at 9, and entrance is $10. Sunday evening, Rose Music Hall hosts guitarist and singer-songwriter Jackson Stokes with Blake Gardner and the Farmers. And that's at 8pm and tickets are $5. Tuesday evening, there's an opening reception and a Meet the Artist at Wilder's World for a new exhibit by artist Robert Scott Gardner. The reception is from 5 till 7 and the exhibit will continue through February the 25th. At Rose Music Hall on Wednesday night, there's the rescheduled Missouri Hip Hop Fest with Steady P and DJ Muff, Van Ghost, Sergio Slayer, Reese Young and Landolin. You'll need $8 to get in and the hip hop starts at 9.
Next Thursday, Skylark Bookshop is hosting a party for University of Missouri professor Fong Gwynn's new novel, Roundabout, which was written without using the letter E. That alone makes me want to read it. At the State Historical Society of Missouri's Center for Missouri Studies, the rescheduled grand opening for their new Music in Missouri exhibit takes place next Thursday. The exhibit tracks Missouri's role in shaping American sound, and that reception is from four till six and is free and open to all. At the Blue Note next Thursday, the com- Como Comedy Club is presenting Todd Barry, who, as well as being on a slew of late night shows, is also the voice of Hamagai on Bob's Burgers. Todd's show starts at seven and tickets are $25. And finally, a reminder to visual artists the deadline is fast approaching for this year's Les Bourgeois Collector Series wine label competition. The deadline is next Friday, January the 31st. So if you have a wine label design you want to submit, go to MissouriWine.com forward slash CS. 2020. Thank you so much for listening to Speaking of the Arts at 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia with me, Diana Moxon, and my good friend and sound engineer, Mike Hagan. We'll be back next week with more arts chat and sneaky peeks behind the Mid-Missouri Arts Curtain. Until then, stay arty, Columbia. <laughs>